So right at the beginning, I give you a very violent scene of his house getting shot at because these guys invited themselves to a party he was having, which is more like a rock and roll party, right? It's just like a cool thrift store style vintage wearing party for like the hip guys and girls, you know, like students from UCLA. And then all these gangsters show up and then there's a drive by and there's all this violence. We're back. It is next week. Rodrigo is still here. We have wrapped up our discussion about toddler poop. It can be bigger than you would imagine. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the displaced. The reason that I started the last episode talking about where you currently live is partly because your bio talks about where you grew up. And this book, I would imagine, is at least loosely based on things you observed growing up in. You were in like Culver City-ish? So I grew up in Lenox, which is adjacent to the LAX airport. So you grew up in like not probably the nicest neighborhood and you currently live in probably the nicest neighborhood, or at least one. Of, I don't even know anyone in PV. I just ride my bike there sometimes. And sometimes I'm riding around just thinking like, man, this is nice out here. So your book, The Displaced, is from Arte Publico Press, 2022, hot off the presses. My copy is still warm. And it is blurbed by none other than Juno Diaz, who were actually reading Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow in a few weeks. So that will be really fun. I'm excited to revisit that one. So it's blurred by Juno Diaz, who says, Ribera de Abre has written a scorcher of a debut. And that is a pretty solid blurb from a Pulitzer Prize winner, who also happens to be just one of my favorite writers. Reading your book, I can see why he blurbed it. It's very different. It's told from different perspectives. And it's really about Los Angeles and about gentrification and about violence. And it's a fantastic read. And so if you're looking for a book to read, this is a great one. Before we get into The Displaced, I want to learn a little bit about who you are and why this book coming from you is so good and so telling. So you have some expertise in gangs. You wrote a book called Urban Politics, The Politics and Culture of the Sur 13 Gangs. Tell us a little bit about that. First of all, how did you come to write a book about the internal politics of gangs in Los Angeles? Yeah, yeah, that's a very loaded, complex how did you come to have the expertise to write that book, I guess, is the question. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. So I used to be from the street gang of Lennox, where I grew up. In 1993, there was a peace treaty amongst the Sureño, the Sur 13 gangs. This peace treaty introduced a lot of vocabulary, things that people didn't know about prior to that. So gangs are really like loosely organized. They're just you hang out on the streets, you do a lot of dumb stuff, a lot of stuff happens that's situational. From like the situationists in France, like they came up with that term back in the 60s, right? Is that a lot of things just happen on like a random basis. It's not like gang members are out there every day, like going to enemy territory or something like that. You know, you just might be in a place somewhere coming out of a liquor store and like somebody shoots at you and that creates a situation. That's situationism. All these different things that you didn't do before, suddenly, because of the peace treaty, the narrative of the street gangs changed. So suddenly you were going to meetings and there were representatives at these meetings and you were paying taxes and people were collecting taxes. And then you started paying taxes to like the bigger people involved, which in the book I refer to as the prison Congress because they have overall authority over all the gangs on the outside and they have overall decision-making authority because once you go to prison and your fellow gang members go to prison, like they need the protection from 
this bigger organization, which is the prison Congress. And so living that kind of experience, that world, when I went to college and I studied political science, all of these things just started connecting. Oh my God, we were so politicized. We really responded to this in like political forms, like political parties. You know, you had what out here we call cliques. You know, we join a gang. Usually if a gang is big enough, it has cliques, right? So they're different cliques and they're just kind of like political parties. And so after reading Thomas Hobbes, after reading Rousseau, after reading some philosophy, after examining like the politics, studying like public administration of Los Angeles, I saw a lot of similarities. And I just started kind of playing around with terminology with friends, like referring to certain people in the gang as the city manager or like the mayoral figure. And then all of these things started kind of coming about. And I thought, hey, I might have information to like actually write something that's a little bit longer. So yeah, I put some chapters together and then I realized I had a lot of information to do a book. It's a straight philosophy book. I wanted to show if gang members read it, because a lot of my fellow colleagues, you know, from the gang, they couldn't read it. They had a hard time reading it except for a lot of the ones that were in prison because they seemed to have more time and seemed to do more reading. So it was like more natural for them to understand things that are more nuanced and complex. What was the reaction to it from them? Well, first I had to get permission to write it so that it wasn't like telling any secrets or saying things that are unknown to like law enforcement, that sort of thing. I didn't want to suffer any repercussions for the kind of work that I was doing. But because it was, like I said, it was straight philosophy. It was more of, it's more of like a comprehensive understanding of how politicized street gangs function. It sounds like street gangs, the way you describe them, would meet Max Weber's definition of a state. Human community that has the monopoly on the legitimate use of physical force within a given territory. It's like to a T, really. That sounds like it would have came out of the book, for sure. Territories that are controlled by gangs, they're the authority. And I mean, I guess cops can shoot their way in and shoot their way out, but it's really the gangs that have the ultimate authority, I guess, especially if a cop might come and go, but you have to live there. That's the social contract. That's why like Rousseau's work was so important for me. As I'm reading it in college, I keep thinking about the gang world where I grew up and I couldn't see anything else when I was reading this kind of material. I was like, this is exactly how we live. Like we lived in an enhanced anarchic state that state that you're referring to is the social contract that has absolute sovereignty over individuals, over a multitude of people, which is what the street gang, how it functions. That's incredible. Did you go to jail? I've been to jail, but like not long periods of time. So I've never been to prison. That's what I meant. I've gone to jail. I guess I meant like incarcerated. I've gone to jail for like, I didn't have my license and I had to wait there till someone came to get me. But you got out of the gang before it ruined your life. Yes. Is that more common than we would think? Or is the narrative of people get into a gang and it destroys their life? Like that's what we're taught to believe is the inevitable outcome of being a member of a gang always. Is that been your experience or is your personal experience more common than we have been led to believe? My experience is more common. And I wrote about that in urban politics. When somebody decides to walk away from this, usually they're just allowed to, unless you do something very specific. Like if you're a snitch an informant, that sort of thing. But for the most part, everybody just kind of fades out. You grow up, you have children, maybe like the cohort that you belong to is no longer around. So you don't have any obligation to people that you are not involved with. You know, and there's different generations of gangs and different groups. That's what I had referred to in like the political parties or the cliques. A lot of them are grouped based on age. 
So if like the cohort that you're a part of, suddenly they're getting married, they move to a different location and they're just gone, you know, everybody just fades out. It's not like you have to get jumped out or like killed or like this is going to be your life forever. You kind of just fade out and people still have those ties to some of these people. I still talk to a lot of the guys that I was involved in the gang with. But, you know, it's not like we're active gang members. We're not on the streets doing stuff or anything like that. Like, it's just... <laughs> it changed in diapers. Right, exactly. It's something that we lived and experienced at the time. Wow. I had not heard that, that the more common experience is that you just walk away. Yeah. And I work with a lot of artists who have very similar experiences. So it's not like, oh, this is very specific to the area or like the gang that I grew up. Like, I know a bunch of dudes from different neighborhoods that have all experienced the same thing. Famous tattoo artists, famous painters, famous graffiti artists, you know, whatever. Like a lot of us experience very similar things and they're just out there doing their thing like I'm doing mine. So, all right, we've talked a lot about a lot of stuff, but we have not really talked about The Displaced. It's a novel. It's told from a couple of different viewpoints and it takes place in Westside 1999, which I would imagine is approximately the time and place where you grew up. Correct me if I'm wrong because I have the author here, but I would say it's about the tide of gentrification and the tide of violence and how they are sort of two opposing forces and we've got these characters caught in between them. Is that a fair generalization? No, no, it's very fair. Yeah. So what is gentrification and do you think it's bad or good? So originally when I first started writing this book, or when I first started thinking about it, yes, this is considered like a bad word, gentrification. Anywhere around the world that people have experienced this push-pull narrative people having to be relocated people having to move a lot of things come up when you think about gentrification there's a lot of sound bites that pop up there are words like urban renewal there are words like up-and-coming community there are words like rent increase displacement eviction eminent domain yeah a lot of this yeah it is considered like a bad thing however this has been asked a lot to me, can we stop this? Has there successfully been a community, a city that have been able to push this thing back? Is it part of the process? Is it part of living in a capitalist society where a market dictates change? So when I first started writing about it, my ideas were different and my experience was different and my place in life was different, which is that when I first started writing it, the first house that I bought was in South Central Los Angeles because I could not afford a house in Westchester or Culver City or Playa del Rey or Playa Vista, Marina del Rey. These are all places that were home when I was a kid. These are places where we have family or we grew up going to or we just hung out in these places. Lennox is literally like two minutes away from Westchester. I should be able to buy a house in Westchester, but I can't. And so when I first started writing the novel, it was a little bit more high charge, seen as, as a bad thing. As my life started changing, as things started changing for me economically and the way I started viewing the world a little bit differently, I also learned to kind of accept that some of these changes are going to happen. And to some extent, even encouraging these changes. For example, you know, I lived in San Pedro for a couple of years. San Peter's a great place and their downtown is always just like a little rundown. 
every time I go down there, you know, my wife and I always say like, I wish it would gentrify a little bit more because, you know, I don't want to go all the way to Highland Park or like the arts district to go to like these cool restaurants. I want better restaurants that are closer to where we live. A lot of people feel that way. And that's also very normal to not want to drive an hour to go to a cool restaurant or a bar or a gallery. You want things that are closer. And so that's really like what these waves of gentrification were was that people started demanding certain things that they wanted in their community where they didn't have to go so far. And is there anything wrong with that? No, there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay to want to support the local places in your community. So I think that the question becomes, when is it your community, right? In my 20s, I was living in Brooklyn, and I was living in a part of Brooklyn that when I moved there was pretty terrifying, and now I couldn't afford to live there. I was a gentrifier, I suppose, although I was a little bit before the gentrifiers, frankly, but we would think of the hipsters as zombies. And you have a scene like this in your book where, you know, they see a hipster coming down the street, and they're like, what is that? They're telling stories about this guy, right? Like, I saw this dude, what's going on? And it's like, you see one, and then all of a sudden, then there's another one, and then there's another one, and then there's a coffee shop where they do pour over coffee, and they are all in it, you know? It does come in waves, and so yes, you want your community to be improved, but I think the narrative is that it's the people who are coming in to the community that's already there that are trying to improve it to make it to their specifications. And actually, I've really only been on one side of this argument, which is that I think that a neighborhood that has coffee shops and banks and restaurants is better than a neighborhood that has a lot of crime and a bunch of boarded up windows. For sure. But this is not self-evident to some people and even some politicians in our city. It sucks that people who live in crime-ridden neighborhoods have to get displaced. It sucks that people have to move. But like if they live somewhere that's unsafe, you're not doing them any favors by just allowing them to keep living there. Am I wrong? Or maybe I'm wrong. No, no, you're right. And the main character, even though it's told from three different perspectives, Mikey, the journalist, really is kind of like the main character. He welcomes gentrification at first. So he's okay with this because there are a lot of people that feel this way. So I wanted to identify that there are people that are very accepting of this that live in these communities. So we can't just say like, oh, people of color are getting displaced and, you know, they want to still live in their community. Well, Mikey represents one of these kinds of characters that he went to college, you know, he tried to do better. He wants to leave the hood, but he also likes the idea of these coffee shops and galleries and bookstores or whatever it is to come to his community because he didn't experience that growing up. He experienced more social disorganization. So right at the beginning, I give you a very violent scene of his house getting shot at because these guys invited themselves to a party he was having, which is more like a rock and roll party, right? It's just like a cool thrift store style vintage wearing party for like the hip guys and girls, you know, like students from UCLA. And then all these gangsters show up and then there's a drive-by and there's all this violence. But that's the reality of living in these communities where we grew up, where we don't want that. This isn't anything that's good for the community to have this type of violence. So I have to identify this in the novel, which is a reality. Look at the violent methods, the cycle of violence, which is the only means that they know how to operate by starting this militia, by saying, you know what, let's just get rid of these gentrifiers by shooting them. And eventually they'll go away. Yeah, I mean, Mikey eventually picks up a gun. That was sort of the moment in the novel where I was like, oh, I feel like it's these two like tides. You're going to be on one side or the other and they're going to just crash into each other. But yeah, Mikey eventually picks up a gun. Do you see him as succumbing to his past or fighting for his future when he decides to get violent? What do you think he thinks? 
I think he thinks he's fighting for his future. He made a decision to survive, to stay alive, right? I was doing this talk yesterday, and one of the audience members asked, when Mikey decides to join the quarantine in the projects, he decides to join his buddies. And I said, no, quite the opposite. He doesn't trust these people. They don't trust him. He has no friends in the projects when he decides to join the quarantine. He becomes, at this point, an opportunist. He's very selfish at this moment because he knows that being in the projects and writing about this, his career depends on it. He is willing to risk his life for the sake of his career and for the sake of where this is going to take him. And so he decides to stay there as a war correspondent and view it from a perspective that he thinks is as objective as possible. But for him, like this struggle really is like his coming of age. It's his struggle to survive and when he picks up a gun, even though he had never really engaged in violence before, he's been around it. And as a writer being like exposed to this quarantine and this mission, like he started seeing how normal and easy it was for people to do this. And this is something that I wrote in Urban Politics. You become socialized by this, whether you like it or not. And so at this point, that's where Mikey, just because of this socialist organization that he grew up in, it was either his neighbor or him. You know, one of them was going to die and he chose to live. Once again, he's an opportunist. He saw this opportunity and then he's having difficulty with the repercussions of this because he thinks that psychologically he saw how easy it was for other people to commit violence, but he's wrestling with it. He's having a hard time. He's not really cut from the same cloth as these people. It was funny. My wife, after she read the story, she's like, oh, Mikey's such a weak guy. He's so lame. I don't like him. I liked him at first, but he's just this weak guy who's very false. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I could see that. But when she said that, I realized I did my job. You don't need to like him. None of them are likable. The doctor's not likable. Like, none of these characters are likable. But you have to at least empathize with their difficulties and their flaws and their nuances as people. I wasn't trying to write likable characters. So you grew up in a neighborhood that has now been gentrified. You now live in a neighborhood that was never gentrified. It was just nice when they built it, as far as I know. Is that wrong? I feel like PV was built kind of the way it is. PV was the first garden city in Los Angeles. So urban planners had a very specific agenda in mind, a green garden city. However, today I'm considered a gentrifier in my community. That's what I was getting to earlier when I was talking to you about how when I first started writing the novel, I was in a different like economic situation in my life. Now that the novel's out, I'm in a much different situation economically. At first, writing the novel, I understood what it was like on one end of the spectrum to be priced out of communities, to not be able to afford a house where I wanted to, to be on the opposite end where my neighbors call me a gentrifier. Is it a symptom of just getting more conservative as you get older? Or do you think that the younger you would have seen gentrification in the way that the older you sees now if they just had the information? So this is the argument that I get into all the time with my political friends. I have a political action committee, and one of the things we do is argue productively. I find myself arguing for gentrification as a means to make Los Angeles a better city in almost every case. And when I was younger, I didn't feel that way, but I do now. I think it's because I've seen more of the world. My colleagues say that it's because I'm older and you get more conservative as you get older. I think it's a little bit of both. I'm with you on that one. I didn't realize I was a gentrifier. I didn't realize that people considered me that way. But I think what happens is that 
especially here where in Palos Verdes, where traditionally it's been a lot more conservative. What I wrote about in this article is that being a gentrifier means something different to different people in different communities. It's not necessarily just people of color being displaced by white people in their traditional communities. It's people being different in a way that people haven't experienced something like that before. But this is like academicizing this word to make it mean stuff changes. I mean, yes, communities change. People move and different people make communities different. Is this really like a, is this really a political issue? I mean, people move from one place to another. This has been happening for the last 5,000 years, as far as we know. To agree with you on that, then I'll say yes, it's part of the process. Because if it's something we can count on is change. And communities have changed. Sometimes they've been more homogenized and then like diversity happens and then they're different. So yes, this is part of the process all around the world. People move to different areas. These things are also dictated by the market. I have a good amount of LA authors on the podcast and they all have an opinion about getting published, writing stories about Los Angeles. Did you have any trouble getting this book published? Like being that it's a story about Los Angeles and it's not like a New York centered urban story. Yes. Yeah, for sure. You encountered this kind of like East coast chauvinism. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because all the agents are back East. You have to research all these literary agents just to even submit to them. So you have to know all their background. And I remember experiencing it and also reading about it, that the majority of the literary agents are women and they're in New York. So if you don't appeal to this female reader, this woman reader, and it's not like an East Coast thing, because they tell you what their likes are. You have to know their bios. And if it doesn't fit that, then it's going to be very difficult for them to even read your query letter. So I was having a lot of difficulty with submitting to these people. Yeah, also for like authors who are looking to get published, Rodrigo is giving you really great tips right now. That, and then it's like, they started changing like some of their bios, like they wanted other voices, own voices, right? It was like a hashtag that was coming out. But there's only room for like one or two of those authors in their roster. If they've already published an author that sounds like you or has a story that might be even like similar to yours a little bit, then your letter is not going to get read either. So there's a lot of issues with the publishing world. I wasn't getting any hits. This is over like 100 literary agents that I submitted to. I took a break when I stepped back into the submission process was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And the reason why I did that is because I had written a lot of stuff that we were experiencing in the pandemic, like quarantine and the riots and the looting and all that stuff was already in my novel that I had written about three or four years ago. So I said, hey, maybe now's a good time for it to resonate since the publishing world is always like, what's the next thing? What's trending right now? Sure enough, the literary agents and the publishers started responding because all of a sudden, like, it made sense that this novel would have some audience or people would at least be willing to read about it now because I had been talking about things that we have been experiencing. And they seemed kind of accurate. You know, the things that we experienced in the pandemic, people were more community oriented in the quarantine. Neighbors were like, if you need somebody to go to the store, I'll go to the store for you. I'll watch your kids or if you want me to walk your dog. You know, there was a lot of that going on on like the next door app or even just with neighbors that you talk to. And I said, oh, that's what I wrote about in the novel also. I wrote that people became better 
spouses sometimes. Parents became better with their children. They started to play with them more. They started to know a little bit about them more because you spent a lot of time with them that you hadn't in the past. So you just framed your query letter a little bit differently? That's exactly what I did. That's amazing. So Rodrigo, let me ask you the question that we asked to end the podcast actually this time, which is to recommend two books to our audience. The Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, Juno Diaz really changed my life in writing. Prior to that, I remember a professor asked me who were my inspirations as writers, and I listed three writers and they were all dead. And he said, do you like anybody who's alive? So then when I started reading Juno Diaz in college, I was just blown away by how amazing and beautiful his voice was. So he definitely helped me find my way through fiction writing. Any other of his books also, he's an amazing writer. And Dodgers by Bill Beverly. I love that book. It's a crime novel. It's not a book about the Dodgers. It's not. Okay. At all. Yeah. Thanks so much for doing the show. It's great to have you. Great to read your book. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the invite, Lucas. My guest next week is Robert K. Sutton. We're going to be reading Personal Memoirs by Ulysses S. Grant. Yes, that Ulysses S. Grant, the general of the Civil War and then president of the United States. See you next week. Oh, and next week is going to be our first Miami Book Fair episode. So Robert K. Sutton will be at the Miami Book Fair, which is just like the best place to talk about books, buy books, learn about books, and meet authors. So hopefully I'll see you there in November. The Book Society podcast is hosted by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago, and produced by Santiago Ramones. I guess I produce it too. Santiago edits it, does all the important stuff, and I just talk to the guests and read the books. So I hope you like it. If you do like it, it would be great if you could rate and review it because that really helps the show. It helps other people find the show. And the more people listen to the show, the more awesome guests we're going to be able to get. So rate and review the podcast. Thanks very much. Hello, Book Society. This is Santiago Ramones. We're giving away a signed copy of Rodrigo's book, The Displaced. If you want an opportunity to win it, send an email to Lucas and let him know whether you agree or disagree about his stance on gentrification. I know I wanted to argue with him. So send an email to booksocietypod at gmail.com and the best response will be read on the show and we'll mail you this copy of The Displaced. That's booksocietypod at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. It's not a book about the Dodgers. It's not. Okay. At all. Yeah. And, and I don't like baseball. You don't like baseball? You can't be on this show. This podcast is over, right? <laughs> yeah. We're just scrubbing your episode from the record. <laughs> <laughs>